This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. We're so happy that you're here for a new episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. Today, we're going to discuss the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and what it means for the broader economy. Then we're going to talk about trends we see in state legislatures across the country. We know many of you are very concerned about anti-trans legislation and bills that have teachers walking on eggshells. So we're going to begin a conversation about that type of legislative work today. We always end with what's on our minds outside of politics. And today I will just have to turn that segment over to Sarah entirely, who is thinking about the Oscars. Before we jump in, we wanted to share that we are going to be doing something so fun on our premium channels this spring. We loved talking about Succession Together. And Joy of Joyce, you loved listening to us talking about Succession Together. So we have decided to do weekly episodes tracking this fourth and final season of the HBO show for our premium members. Those will be starting the last week of March. So you want to make sure and get signed up on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscription now so you don't miss any. Those episodes will be available to our $15 a month subscribers and up along with all the regular bonus content we provide there. There's more info on how to sign up in our show notes. Also, just a reminder, we would love to see you in Orlando, Florida for our live show with our families and friends and politics in the most magical place on earth on Wednesday, April 5th. All the information about tickets will be in the show notes. We would love to see you there. And next up, the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. I was not aware of Silicon Valley Bank's existence until the weekend when it was 
about the only thing I was aware of news-wise. Mm-hmm. I watched headlines roll in. So this bank was founded in 1983 and was very niche. It makes sense that I didn't know about it because it really specialized in banking for tech startups. And while it is niche, it is huge. Silicon Valley Bank financed almost half of U.S. venture-backed tech and healthcare companies and was among the top 20 commercial banks in the United States. At the end of last year, it had $209 billion in total assets. So, Sarah, as you were learning about the bank's collapse, what stuck out to you as the factors that sort of conspired to take this bank from such a powerful position into the hands of an FDIC receivership? Well, when I first heard about it, honestly, I thought it was another crypto bank collapse. We had Silvergate, which was a crypto-focused bank collapse earlier in the week. And I thought, oh, this is another one of those. And then I started learning more about it. And, you know, I think it's the two things are true at once. It's important to the entire financial industry. And also, it is very unique. Most of the deposits at this bank were over the $250,000 FDIC-insured limit because most of the deposits at this bank were companies, were startups, not individuals. And so I think the first thing to do is to remind ourselves of all these sort of fundamentals of banking and also how this bank was different. You're going to have to hold both things at the same time. You know, it was a classic bank run. I would like to lay some of that squarely at Peter Thiel's feet because he's an easy villain. Um, And it was his venture capital firm that started first advising people to pull their money from Silicon Valley Bank. And so then we have like the classic, like I said in the news brief, the classic, if you've watched It's a Wonderful Life bank run. But then I have to remind myself, well, they don't keep all our money in like a big safe deposit box, right? They use that money to make more money because they have to pay interest rates, right? And so This is where I think we get into the differences. Like those fundamentals apply of the balance sheet and paying interest rates and banks, as Maggie always says, (laughs) sell money. Um, But then we have to get into what made Silicon Valley Bank different and then therefore vulnerable inside the pretty classic rules of the financial industry. So one of those vulnerabilities comes from the fact that the tech industry absolutely boomed during COVID, which you would think would be fantastic for a bank. But it changed some banking fundamentals because instead of this bank taking money from depositors and lending that money back out, a lot of its depositors and people in its sector didn't need loans during Mm -hmm. COVID. And so it has this capital sitting around that it needs to do something with. And it put that money in bonds because bonds were super easy to acquire during that zero interest time that we've talked a lot about here on the show. Well, as the Federal Reserve started ratcheting up interest rates, those bonds became loss leaders for this bank. And so according to CNN, Silicon Valley Bank had a $21 billion bond portfolio yielding about 1.79% interest compared to the current 10-year Treasury yield of 3.9% interest. And that's really where this starts. Last Wednesday, the bank announces the sale of a bunch of securities at a loss and says, we're going to pare down this bond portfolio so we don't have future losses. 
and we're going to sell $2.25 billion in new shares. And that's where the panic came in and where you have venture capital advising people to pull their money. I was just reading a piece before we started recording about how the classic way to make money in business is bundling and unbundling, but the third way is secrets. And when you know Mm -hmm. something ahead of other people knowing it, you can act in a very selfish way and get ahead because of it. And that's what happened here as that bank run was triggered. The people who knew this start passing it around. And it's just... This is the part that is so frustrating to me because who knows what would have happened if they had executed this strategy and kept moving forward. Mm -hmm. But people decide, I don't want to be grouped with other creditors if this thing goes bad. So I'm going to take this moment and jump to the front of the line and get all my money out. And that sends the stock plummeting. And by Friday morning, the regulator said, we have to shut this down. This is is bad news. Before we get into... The shutting down, this is bad news. I want to go back to the deposits and the frothy money that was sloshing around. Really, you know, inside this industry, period, but particularly during the pandemic, right? Deposits rose 85% in 2021. (laughs) And I don't think it's unimportant that we, post-2008, during the Trump administration, had rolled back some of the regulations for these smaller banks. It's it's a huge bank, but it's a regional bank. It's not a J.P. Morgan, and said, you don't have to have as many assurances. You don't have to make sure that your balance sheet can back up your obligations. We'll roll back some of those requirements, and here we are. And I think, you know, when you're talking about venture capital, when you're talking about low interest rates, when you're talking about free money and startups, and then you start to talk about what happened after the government stepped in, yeah, it's easy to be like, what the heck? Like, why are we assuring the deposits on people who were behaving as if this frothy money would go on forever? And like, not everybody's going to be made whole from this, and I understand that. And I understand people had to make payroll. And I'm really not mad at the startups per se, but I do reserve a lot of my ire for the venture capitalists who seem incapable of any sort of long-term wise analysis up to and including this idea of go pull your money. I think a huge problem over the past couple of years is that no one has any patience for a graph that does something other than just go up and to the right. Mm-hmm. It's like if you are not always, always, always on an upward trajectory of making more money, something must be really wrong. And there have to be corrective periods, especially when you put a pandemic and a land war in Europe into the equation. Some things are going to change. I really lament the impatience with this bank as I read more about how this went down. And in addition to thinking about regulations within the banking sector, I think we have to ask some questions about the incentives for decision makers at individual organizations. If you are a corporate treasurer who receives this announcement and you owe fiduciary duties to your shareholders, there is a lot of pressure to jump the line, to get your money out, to make the the most conservative decision. That's what you tell yourself about it. And I wonder if we need to think about bank runs and these types of incentives and beyond the banking industry itself, ask, what can we do to give people some economic patience? 
How can we ensure that exercising your fiduciary duty doesn't always mean immediately pushing the panic button? Because that's what's going on in our economy right now. It's so fueled by confidence. And I was thinking about the question of like, does this hurt the industry overall? What, What the Federal Reserve and the Treasury have been talking about all weekend? Everybody be cool. Most of our banks are very well capitalized. It is not inevitable that we see bank runs everywhere else or that we see this cause the entire economy to go into freefall. What makes it inevitable is panic. And I think we set up a lot of incentives that cause officers within individual organizations to feel like panic is their only option. And I would like to talk about the fiduciary duty in the middle of a very unique situation, in the middle of a pandemic where in a financial sector that was already pretty frothy, it just gets flooded with cash. And the decision is to pull it into bonds. So like SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, it had about 56% of its assets in securities, whereas like a bank like Fifth Third has about 25%. Bank of America has a 28%. No one said, is this wise? Is this going to go on forever? Is this money that is just inundating our systems in the middle of a global pandemic, the new reality? Because I could have answered that question for you, and I'm not a financial expert. The answer is, of course it's not. Of course it's not. Okay, well, then what happens if they raise interest rates? It's pretty predictable that if they raise interest rates, you're both going to get lower yields on those bonds, and you're going to have the tech sector needing some of that cash and all your deposits. Like, I just, to me, that's the part that's so upsetting is like, this was predictable. And I don't think the run was the answer. And I think it was good and right that they should have been trying to prop up some of their assets, could have done it sooner. And it wasn't just that they were doing this stock sale and trying to keep it a secret. It was also that Moody's came along and was like, we're going to drop your rating. And they're like, could you maybe just not tell anybody? (laughs) Moody's was like, no, that's not how it works. Um, And then you get this run. But I just think like, to me, this is indicative of a bigger issue inside that sector that's already villainized. And so now you've got on Monday the government coming out and saying, okay, we're going to assure all these deposits, even the ones over $250,000, which isn't that rare. They almost always do this. And they are going to wipe the equity and they are going to wipe some of the value inside the bank. But this is a sector with not a lot of love lost with the American people. And while I understand this is not a taxpayer-funded bailout, I don't think that's what this is, although, of course, that's what Republicans are going to say from here till kingdom come. And I do think, you know, assuring the deposits is the right thing to do. It is frustrating. It's like, regulate this freaking sector. How many times do we have to go through this? I saw Republicans praising this this morning for what it's worth. I saw Mitt Romney saying it's the right call to ensure all of the deposits beyond that 250K limit. I saw Patrick Henry of North Carolina saying that. So I think that this probably won't cut along party lines as neatly as it could. I think this was probably the right decision because we are in such a precarious place economically and because the Federal Reserve is trying so hard to get us through the pandemic and through this inflation with a soft landing instead of a recession. So the last thing we need is the banking sector falling to pieces. So I understand why they did this. I do think we should take the moment to ask what we're doing if we are always using a systemic risk exemption to exceed that $250,000 limit. Maybe we just need to raise the limit. Maybe we need to say all depositors are fully insured at certain banks and then tighten up the regulations to have that FDIC backing. 
And it seems crazy to me that we treat individual depositors and company depositors the same. Why do we do that? That doesn't make any sense. A lot of work to figure out what we want to do next. As this story develops, so the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank has caused stock prices to go down in other banks. It has also led to regulators stepping in to close Signature Bank, which is a crypto-focused entity based in New York. The government has announced that it will also make all of those depositors whole under the systemic risk exception. I would personally like to understand the rubric around crypto-focused banks and what we're doing there and where the FDIC really belongs as a backstop and who is putting their money in riskier ventures that should understand that risk and should undertake it. So I hope this is the end of the bank runs for now, but the beginning of the conversation around this regulation. And I think it will be. And I think we hopefully will pass some regulations and maybe we don't immediately dial them back when everything's calm again. Just a suggestion. I also hope that this doesn't increase that feeling of like spookedness that's happening in tech anyway. We've had tech layoffs. We have seen, you know, the the frothiness, as you described it, Sarah, pull back as we have come out of the pandemic and people have started living more in the world and not just on their screens. And I'm concerned that investments, particularly in the healthcare space, are going to be impacted really negatively by how big this story has been. And so just encourage you as you read about this to look for those factors that make this, as Morgan Stanley analysts have said, highly idiosyncratic and not something that should be read across to other regional banks or across the broader economy in general. Next up, we're going to turn our attention to state legislatures. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, 
Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsuit. Sarah, I had a hard time preparing for this conversation because I do not want to do a despairing, all is lost, Mm -hmm. these bills are the worst, these people are the worst kind of discussion. So as I was putting certain topics into categories, what types of legislation are we seeing across states, I realized that for me, there are sort of three questions that are interesting around this. What constitutes a social harm and how do we agree on what is a social harm? And once we've identified a harm, what kinds of harms can and should be addressed through legislation? So I thought we might just hold those questions in our minds as we go through these bills. And I think the the heading for these bills is that Republicans going into 2024 want to set up a protect the children theme. And they have decided that The treatment and full social participation of transgender people constitutes harm, and they need to protect the children from that harm and are attempting to do that through legislation. But it's not just in the transgender space. When you look at what legislatures are doing around marijuana, around gambling, there's lots of spaces where I think we kind of need to walk back and say, how do we decide what is a social harm? I think about this in a much more politically raw way. To me, the strategy here is so self-evident. It follows many, many of the playbooks that exist for abortion opposition, that existed for gay marriage opposition. And it feels to me like so many of the legislators here and the Republican Party generally particularly state parties, smell blood in a way they didn't with those previous issues. To me, it feels very much like, well, we finally found a culture war where there's not enough people to be empathetic about. (laughs) Like, we finally found this issue 
where it really doesn't touch that many people's lives so we can get away with villainizing this group to our political ends. Now, I don't think that's true, but I think that's what is motivating them. I think back about my own experience in city commission when we passed a fairness ordinance and I had an opponent who ran in opposition to the fairness ordinance and who basically was motivated less by the, you know, gay and lesbian protections and very much by the language surrounding um, transgender rights. And I see that playbook again here. And what I hope is that we can learn the lessons they don't want to learn, which is when this playbook comes out, how can we respond in a way and organize in a way that is more productive? I don't disagree with you about the raw political calculus for certain parties. What I struggle with is then how do you not see this in a all is lost kind of framework and it's just a contest of who holds the state houses? I spoke with someone over the weekend who surprised me by bringing up transgender issues in our conversation. It wasn't even a political conversation. This is not a political person. It just kind of came up and you could tell like this person is thinking hard about this and is really trying to understand and develop some opinions in a space that that just feels hard. And I think that where you have raw political actors influencing the culture through these bills as they are, that's what takes me to those harm questions, because that's where I feel like we can make progress with each other. Our legislators in Frankfurt here in Kentucky do not listen to the public will. They don't. We just saw that in the abortion space, right, where we had this very hard line taken against abortion, and the public has an opportunity to vote on a really narrow referendum, but that a referendum that pretty clearly expresses the will of the voters. And the legislature continues to go hard charging against abortion expansion, against LGBTQ rights. I mean, our the Kentucky Lantern, one of the new media outlets covering the legislature here, described the the past few weeks as being dominated by sex and gambling. Mm -hmm. So not exactly where I think the vast majority of people believe the issues are here. And I just want to figure out how to open up some space and have good conversations about this stuff that don't lead you to believing that the only answer is for every state in the nation to be flipped to blue to have any hope of respecting families who are in the midst of supporting and loving transgender people. Well, I mean, I think there's two conversations there. One, the very few areas, maybe the only area that I agree with Steve Bannon is that politics is downstream from culture. And so we're absolutely having a cultural conversation around gender and biological sex, just like we were having and continue to have a cultural conversation around women's rights and abortion, and just like we were having a cultural conversation and continue to have a cultural conversation around gay and lesbian rights and particularly around marriage. We live in a multicultural democracy, right? We're a pluralistic society. The name of the game is persuasion, unless you want to break up the union or make it illegal for people of certain political beliefs to participate in our democracy. I don't think those options are on the table. I hope not for most people. So at the end of the day, the name of the game is persuasion, right? And compromise. So in some ways, our legislators don't listen 
you know, I was just in Frankfurt for the Kentucky Commission on Women meeting, and and they've introduced, like, twice as many bills as they usually do. They're just, they just want to be heard on all this stuff, right? They're just like, they want it, they want to be in front on these cultural wars, right? But then in another way, I texted my friend who's a psychologist. We had talked about the transgender bill at church. And I said, I'm going to share our our state rep's cell phone number with you. You should text him. You should say, I'm your constituent. This is my experience as a mental health professional. And she's like, well, they took that part out. They took the mental health professional part out. Is it still a heinous bill? Of course it is. Yes, it is still a heinous bill. But they took out the criminal liability for mental health professionals. And as I look back, you know, at the time I spent in my 20s and 30s organizing around women's rights and gay rights and and the massive amount of change and persuasion that happened over that time, I have to remind myself, like, it can happen. And also, it's, again, it's not this destination we reach and then we're done. That's what I hear as the undercurrent is like, this is so harmful and heinous. And also, I thought we were done with this, but we're not ever going to be done with this. It's And it's, we're not ever going to be done with this because we are not going to transform every state into a blue state. We're not going to transform every American into agreement on every cultural issue. And some people get harmed more than others when they, when that experience or that identity or that group is at the center of these cultural moments and we use them as avatars to work out our bullshit, it's incredibly harmful. But I don't think it's a reality we're going to avoid, whatever the issue is. Well, that's why focusing on harm helps me. If I'm going to have a conversation with people in my life about the drag bills, for example, Mm. asking what is the social harm in a library hour with someone in drag If we put it in the terms of an adult shows up to read to children in costume, that sounds not socially harmful to me. If we talk about what drag is and represents, maybe the conversation gets more expansive. But then when you think about what these bills have to include to be at all constitutional, to not be so vague that they are clearly void, to not run afoul of the First Amendment, which protects our free expression, then they become redundant. We already have bills that protect children from sexually explicit messaging in public places and elsewhere. So just trying to think through that harm, what are what is it that we're trying to do here? And you realize the more you peek into these bills that we're not trying to do much. We're just trying to say a lot. I think you're right when you say our legislators are filing all these bills because they want to be heard on it, not because they actually want to do something. So many of these bills that come from interest groups, and that's why you can track them across many states. Not a lot of state legislating tends to be localized anymore because interest groups, you know, roll out these proposals and they're introduced all over the the U.S. So many of these are purely about messaging, purely about what we have to run on, purely about making our opponents take hard votes. And that is discouraging in a sense of what it says about our politics. It's somewhat encouraging when you think about how much harm will flow to people in reality if these bills are adopted and implemented, because there there isn't a lot of constitutional there there as you look at some of the worst of these. And that's something that Ron DeSantis is finding out, right? The, the Florida education bill is a tough one to get through the court system because it it is just almost like someone's uncle's opinion got broadcast and they wrote it down and signed it into law, but it's not 
It's not easily enforced. That doesn't keep teachers from feeling terrible about it and threatened by it. But hopefully at the end of the day, the harm is minimized in the enforcement of it. The trans kids who are showing up for these hearings and saying, this is what this means to me. This is how it affects me, are incredibly brave. They should not have to do that. But that is often the work of our democracy is we come up, we show up, and we say, you're hurting me. Let me explain how. And what I don't want to do is keep trying the same things we tried with abortion and gay marriage, which is you're a terrible person. What's wrong with you? I heard like I was at a meeting this Friday and they were like, they're evil. And I was like, I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it's helpful. Because if you're telling me you're, they're evil, you're telling me that they're less than human. And so what do we get to do to them if they're less than human? Do we get to prevent someone with anti-trans views from running for office, from voting, from speaking? I don't, I, I'm just trying to play this out. I want to be fair on both sides to say, when we're talking in these very intense ways, how, how are we playing this out? And we what we both do is we throw kids into it and say, well, that means... I'm right, and you're a psychopath because you want to harm kids. When everybody thinks they're, the other side is harming kids. Now, I have a belief about what actually harm kids. I think we have some good public health data on what actually harms kids. But this is what we do. We just we scale it all the way up to you hate kids, you want to harm kids. I don't want to be in this doom loop anymore. I don't want to be where we are in abortion, where we actually have rights being rolled back nationwide constitutionally. Right. I just got the Supreme Court decision I was looking for when it came to transgender and gay rights. I don't want that rolled back. And so how do we do things differently? How do we get inside seemingly hopeless situations like these state legislators? But, you know, we've been fighting for these rights when they really, really seemed hopeless, when women couldn't vote, when (laughs) you could go to jail for being gay. So I just want to stay hopeful, stay organized and motivated. And I don't think saying these people are evil monsters, and even though I think some of them are at best, at best, uneducated and at worst, truly craven. I'm not defending any of these state legislators. I think some of them are just cowards and they just do the votes that their leaders want them to take. But some of them are using this in just really base political ways. But that is the reality of a democracy. We're not going to get rid of that. We're not going to regulate our way, vote our way, organize our way out of people using power in really ugly ways. Okay, so how can we out-organize? How can we out persuade, right, to, to to be moving forward in a empowered, hopeful, clear-eyed way so that this bullshit runs out of steam. That's what I wanted to do. I don't want it, I don't want people to suffer as it moves through the court system. I want it to run out of steam before it ever becomes a law. And I do think there's a way to do that even in the reddest of states. But it's an engine. It needs fuel, right? And I think we have to acknowledge, and I'm not saying, like, let's all walk away and say, if nobody's disagreeing with you, then these bills will all die on the vine. They won't. But there is there is an energetic dynamic here that I think I saw play out over and over again in these previous fights that aren't even over that I would like to diffuse this time. I'm not really sure how to diffuse it 
other than the slow patient work of one conversation at a time where I don't impute the raw, craven, political motive of a legislator to a citizen. Mm -hmm. I testified in Ohio when I was working in Cincinnati about the impact of having a person's rights vary by county in line with fairness ordinances saying we need a fairness act for the entire state because it doesn't make sense for your your rights as a gay person to change based on the county that you're in. And the organization Equality Ohio that I worked with to offer that testimony was so impactful because they always talked about how their mission was to change both hearts and policy. And I think that that's where it has to be in the transgender space. And changing hearts in the transgender space is even more complex because you're asking people to develop a sense of fluidity around several layers, not just who might I love, but who might I be? It's a deeper sense of fluidity that you're asking people to develop. And an extraordinary number of people have already proven capable of developing that fluidity. Not enough. And so that slow patient work of having conversations, admitting what we don't know, admitting what's a hard question, mm-hmm. I find makes people much more open to some some ambiguity and some difficult calls than kind of doubling down on the fact that any questioning here makes you a bad person. And I think that's what really connected with me with what you were saying, Sarah, about not seeing people as monsters. And when we're talking about that. We're talking about the people. You can point out the the gross political calculus of political actors. But there are a lot of people who are responsive to those political actors who are persuadable. I completely agree with you. And of course, what's so hard is that often with so many of these bills, the kids caught in the middle aren't citizens in the fullest sense of the world. They can't vote, right? They have no place to participate outside of testimony or having these conversations in their own lives. But that's a big ask for a kid. And I think what I want to say when all this legislation centers so much on such young lives. I want to be really careful to do what's so hard all the time with kids, which is to affirm your feelings and to give them a steady foundation of love and support. That's a hard line to walk. And so, you know, what I would say if I had a trans kid in my own family, what I would say to every trans kid, LGBT kid who feels attacked by this legislation, who feels hunted, is to say the centering of humanity is true for you too. These are laws. They're an exercise of power in the most personal way inside your life. And also the spark of humanity in you remains untouched and untouchable by these people. Remember that. Remember that. The centering of humanity is true For everyone, nothing they can do can touch that beautiful spark of humanity inside you. Don't let struggle or suffering or real discrimination or oppression reduce you. It is hard. It is inevitable in life. It is heartbreakingly common in some lives. 
But don't let that blind you to the bigger reality of your precious value. I think that gets to the reason that I don't want to do an all is lost conversation Mm -hmm. around these bills because I do not want kids or parents of kids who are struggling to hear, look at this slate of awfulness. It must mean there's no hope for you. Mm -hmm. Because I believe in the resilience of people in this space who are doing the work and putting one foot in front of the, the other every single day. I believe in all of the kids for whom it is bananas that this issue is even up for debate. I I do not see a political future where these issues resonate with the voting citizens the way that it does today. And that is not to say that I put all my hope in the kids. That's not fair either. But I just want to say as an adult, you know, here kind of in the middle of my journey, I don't think this is forever. And I don't want the message to be either dismissive of the harm and the suffering or so focused on the harm and the suffering that the that the possibility of what comes next gets lost. Because I think the possibility of a world where people are able to just be who they are with a lot less weight attached to that is here. Like I can I can see how we get through this tunnel. I do think it's slow patient work, but I can see it as getting through this tunnel. And I and I want all of you to be with us as we get through this tunnel. Well, nothing is permanent, the good or the bad. We don't reach a promised land in democracy where our work is done and how whatever hellscape a certain legislator has created is also not permanent. There is no stasis in both good or bad times inside a human existence and not inside a democracy. And I think the mistake we made and we continue to make inside a lot of these conversations is centering just the oppression and trauma inside certain identities. I want to be really careful about that. Not because I don't believe that there is oppression and trauma. There is. There are real hardships depending on who you are inside American society. But we can't end the discussion there, especially not with young people, because there is grit and resilience and beauty and humanity inside those identities as well. And that has to be the center. That has to be the center. I think we've become allergic to this idea that we go through, we can gain anything positive by going through something hard. I don't want to turn this to everything happens for a reason. Nobody does. I've been on the hurtful end of those kind of comments in my life. And also, the things in my life, the most heartbreaking, difficult things in my life have had positive impact on me. That's why I love Stephen Colbert's quote so much. I love the thing I wish most had not happened. And I think this is an opportunity for a lot of things, but it's an opportunity to teach our kids, to show our kids that there is more than trauma and oppression and harm inside these moments in American culture, inside these raw political moves that there's more going on here, and to let them see that and feel that themselves. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. 
I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. For outside of politics today, I'm just going to be here listening because I you don't didn't watch anything. I don't care about the Oscars at all. No, and I did not watch. Okay. Nothing attracted my attention this year. Last year, I caught a little bit enough to know that the slap was happening, and so I was like, "Well, I'm I'm interested now." This year, the only thing I saw was the costume designer award, and I'm glad I saw that. I thought that was lovely, and then I immediately moved on to watch SNL that I had recorded from the night before. Okay, but now wait a second. First of all, 
Did you notice that her note card was the same exact color as her dress? Give Ruth Carter a third Oscar. That was her second. That was a big deal. Give her a third one just for that alone. Amazing. Now, listen, this was a big mainstream year. You saw Top Gun. You saw Avatar. You weren't even a little bit invested. No, because I knew they weren't going to win anything, as they really didn't. No, I think Avatar won something. Didn't it win the like special visual, effects? Like visual, I mean, whatever. But like, <laughs> they weren't going to be I the mean, movies that were taking the actor and actress and best picture home. Right, because they didn't deserve it. They were fine. They were good. I enjoyed them. But they were not as good as Everything Everywhere All at Once. Have you seen that? I have not seen it. So that's part of why I wasn't you should invested. See it. I, I pretty well had the sense that that's where it was all going, and I hadn't seen it. I'm not against seeing it. I probably will at some point. It's good. It's good. And so is Banshees of Inner Sharon. That's my other favorite that I absolutely adored. Well, I will say this. Um, I was bored this year. Can't quite figure out why. I mean, I think part of it was it was very predictable. We all knew, for the most part, who was going to win. There was some, like, like no, literally not a person in that room was surprised <laughs> Michelle Yeoh won. Because she deserved it. Not mad. But it was very predictable. There was a moment where All Quiet on the West- Western Front kept, like, racking up some technical awards. And I was like, hmm, can we have a, a surprise winner like when Moonlight won, which was amazing. But I think that was part of it. They added in all the technical categories again. There were some really lovely moments. There was a great moment during um, the shorts winner where we sang happy birthday. That was fun. The acceptance speeches were lovely. It's like, but it was just lovely. I will say Natu Natu brought the energy. That performance was incredible. I love the Bollywood on the Hollywood stage. But I don't know. I think it all started with the carpet. They made the carpet champagne. It was so boring. Everybody dresses just kind of blended in. I I think I'm just going to like squarely at the carpet's feet. We should have kept it a red carpet. And they were just like so tightly trying to squeeze everything in. They didn't allow for any spontaneity or fun. And also they threw in some commercials. Like I didn't want to see a trailer for The Little Mermaid, even though I'm legitimately excited about The Little Mermaid. But, like, don't put an ad in that. That sucks. Keep this thing rolling. I don't know. It was just, it was a little off this year. I was just, I was kind of, like, the lovely moments were lovely, but I was bored. I read this morning that the carpet got pretty gross fast. Yeah. And I thought, was nobody a mom on the committee that decided this? Any of us could have looked at that carpet and said, ooh, about five minutes in, you're going to wish you had It's going to be nasty. Yeah, I don't get it. I found myself wondering if this was, like, the year. Are we going to be done? I bet you they didn't gain any audience share, which they were really looking to do. I wonder if it'll move to a streaming service next year. I don't know. I don't know what the future of the Oscars is. I mean, they had a crisis team. They took your they took your suggestion last year. <laughs> a Just a year too team. late. Well done, everybody. Just a year too late. And they had, uh, I mean, Jimmy Kimmel cracked so many jokes about the incident last year between Will Smith and Chris Rock. So I don't know if it was that hanging over the whole ceremony that made it feel weird. I don't I really don't know. I'm going to need some t- more time to think about it. But I would be surprised if we get a full-length Oscar ceremony in primetime television next year. You know what I would watch? I would watch a version of the Oscars where everybody was at home and somebody knocked on the door like Ed McMahon with the big check like he used to do. Like, <laughs> you won! Oh, my God! Where, like, somebody just showed up and surprised them. I think that would be very entertaining. And I think a streaming service would have the money to make it extremely exciting to watch something like that. Just needs a little pizzazz. 
Well, I want the formality, though. I don't want to lose the dresses. I don't want to see people. I don't want to see movie stars in their loungewear. No, see, I want the I full red fun. carpet experience. They no, have no, no. so many of these, though. Like, how many times do we need to watch everybody get dressed up? I think that's part of the problem. By the time you get to the Oscars, like, I've already watched clips of all these people accepting awards for these movies. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't need to see them do it again. Well, I don't watch the BAFTAs or the SAG Awards. I don't watch any. I didn't even watch the Golden Globes this year. And still, it makes me sad. I feel like this shared sort of watching experiences of American society are fading. I do wonder if some of this is just the inevitable changes in the movie industry itself. You know, the peak was like the 90s where they were making all these movies that made money on VHS, right? That were so good and were so... Like human, and everybody was invested in them. We were all watching Goodwill Hunting. I loved Goodwill Hunting because it's a great movie, but they don't make a lot of movies like that anymore. And everything, everywhere, all at once, in a way, was like that. But it's not a quiet movie. I mean, it was like a, it's a spectacle. I mean, it's a multiverse experiment, right? And so I don't know if it's because we've left that stage of movie making behind where people were really invested in the films. Because even with the addition of Top Gun and Avatar, that's not the same kind of Oscar bait. I had no emotional connection to Avatar whatsoever. It's beautiful. Right. I applaud them. I do not care what happens to the, like, I do not need anybody to win an award for that movie. It is what it is to me. So I think it's just a combination of all that. People are, the movies have changed. People are less invested in them. So because the movies have changed, the award show has changed. On top of that, you have TV changing and the entrance of streaming, and they're all just sort of compounding at this time and creating an environment where no one wants to watch. Well, it takes some magic out of the industry, too, to have the writers' negotiations looming, to see how difficult the industry is for all the people working within it. I think the Alec Baldwin situation, mm-hmm. where you have someone dying on a movie set, it is it is hard to go from some of the industry realities into this glitz and glam space and just be like, cool, yeah, let's do it. Everything's awesome. Yeah, we've definitely lost some of the magic. I mean, Nicholas was talking about the most thanked person in Oscar history is Harvey Weinstein. It's a fun little piece of Oscar trivia for you. And, you know, I think there was so much writing this year about the Bloodsport of being nominated. There was a Best Actress nominee who people really felt just, you know, machinated her way into a nomination and so, like, all that sort of—it's like the it's like the C-SPAN effect on Congress. It's like we're seeing way too much of this, and it's stripping the sort of magic out of the movies, even though I still love the movies. I still loved many of the movies nominated. But it's like we know too much to really enjoy the award shows anymore. I really think I've solved it here. I think surprise people at home have Jennifer <laughs> Coolidge surprise people at home with an Oscar. Just— Congratulations. Enjoy your Sunday. You won. I hope, it's, I hope it's awesome for you. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you for listening. We appreciate and always attempt to honor your time with us. Please do not forget to check our show notes for information on our Orlando show and how to get access to our succession discussions that are coming up and much more. We'll be back in your ears on Friday. Until then, have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music.
Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. Catherine Vollmer. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Linda Daniel. Emily Neasley. The Hattons! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Emily Helen Olson. Lee Shea McDonough. Morgan McHugh. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Nicole Berkless. Paula Bremer. And Tim Miller. Amazing. A little bit of Bollywood to the Oscar stage. Loved it. Oh, hold on. No, don't. Don't. He's knocking on my door. Hold on a second. Shit. Ah. Ah.